Welcome to the Venezuelan Diaspora Project, where you will find Venezuelan entrepreneurs and changemakers that we searched and interviewed to present to you. My name is Jesus Bolivar, also known as Chubeto. So let's get to it. All right, welcome, guys, to this uh, Venezuelan Diaspora edition, where we where have the honor to have Renato Agrela, founding partner of Two-Way Consulting. And in this session, uh, we're going to get to know him and learn from his entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial journey and being a Venezuela. Welcome, Renato. Thank you, Chueto, which is so hard for me to el say. Chu, el Chue. Jesus Alberto. <laughs> Just a quick clarification. As you say, Renato Agrella. Agrella, Agrella. <laughs> Ag Agrella is not my last name. It's Agreja. Ah, coño, perdón. It's, it's funny. It's funny. And it's okay. You know what happened all the time? Is even in Venezuela, growing up in Venezuela, everybody will assume I was Italian. Right. So everybody will call me Renato Agrella. There you go. And it's Spanish. Actually, it's from the Canaras uh, Islands. And, uh, and I think that's it's a funny thing. Canary Islands. Well, there's a lot of immigration immigrants from Canary Islands in Venezuela, right? So that, that's your vein. Great. So Renato, let's start with, tell us about your venture, your startup, your your company. Just tell us briefly about it, uh, how it came about and, and what is it? Yeah, I will not call it a startup anymore, mm -hmm. uh, but that's in my head is that um, I started two-way consulting seven years ago. And what we do is storytelling for business. So we work with B2B companies, helping them craft the stories to address, you know, product releases or services that they're providing to different audiences. Uh, and we help them build all the vehicles to deliver those messages, uh, whether it's an animation, a, a deck, a landing page. How I came about it was through doing consulting. I did an MBA at the University of Washington, graduated from there, started doing some consulting and worked for a couple of uh, consulting firms that grew very fast. And very quickly, I realized that one of the problems that our clients were having at that time was that they, they were hiring agencies to do creative work and they were hiring consulting firms to do strategic work. Mm. However, both will have to depend on each other. And there was a gap in between the frameworks that were created by the consulting firms and how those frameworks were executed by agencies. So I quickly realized that when I wanted to find a way to build a company to play right in the middle and, uh, and be both creative and strategic. Through my uh, tenure in other consulting firms, I had the opportunity to, to work with a lot of great consultants. And I had the opportunity to work with actually a classmate of mine, Abby Breckenridge, who is now my partner. And I brought her in as a partner. I brought another Venezuelan actually, uh, who is our creative director. Did you meet in Venezuela? Did you know her from back in Venezuela or did you meet no, in the US? No, 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 no. The funniest thing ever is Abby Breckenridge, the person that, that became my first partner, mm -hmm. who graduated with me uh, from the U of MBA, the Foster School of Business, her best friend married this guy, this Venezuelan guy, and they moved from New York to Seattle maybe 12, 13 years ago. And Abby was like, Renato, you need to meet Daniel. He doesn't have any Venezuelan friends in Seattle. And I want you to, you know, be friends. And it's like that kind of thing. Wow. Like, oh, that's so a lot of pressure. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure. Uh, but you know me, I'm a social butterfly. So I was like, yeah, let's go. Let's do it. We became instant friends. You know, it, it's, a, 
I'm very lucky that I have them as partners, but they're, they're also my friends, nice. uh, which is also maybe a topic for another yeah. so, uh, conversation. So Renato, hopefully, uh, hopefully the folks who are listening are both Venezuelans, they're entrepreneurs, and they're part of the diaspora. So thinking about putting that hat on of those who are listening, what is one failure that you're proud of? Like the, what's one thing in starting the venture that you think or any, you know, things that you learned that you would like those folks who are listening to know and learn from? Any you can think of. How many hours do we have? <laughs> um, well, but, and, and the reason, you. no, but the reason I ask this question is because typically, you know, there's like this uh, mystique of like, if you're an entrepreneur and you have a, a, a successful company like yours that's thriving, everything's roses and it's all good. So that's why I posed yeah. the question of like, let's talk about the failures and, and what you learn from them. Makes sense. I think, you know, there's failures. I think the important part about failures mm -hmm. is learning from them and something, my recent failure that I feel like I want to warn everyone on it is acting. When you know that you're doing something wrong, act fast. Mm. There's something about taking the time, brewing it, you know, trying to really get to the essence. Usually your first instinct is right. So you fail fast. Find a way. Fail fast. Yeah. The fail fast, mm. it is very, uh, it's a coin phrase, but you are right. It was like, the, the thing is, not everybody is built that way. Mm -hmm. So the, the fast is a relative term. Find what the fast means to you. So you quickly, once you are in one of those situations, you can really quickly assess whether, how you act, how you need to act on it. Um, and I think that's the key. It's like being able to act quickly when you see that you're failing in something. And, and it happened, it happened to every single entrepreneur. Many entrepreneurs actually fail their entire business model because they stick into this like stubbornness of, no, no, this is the way, this is the way. And failing, it's okay. Redirecting, it's okay. So as an entrepreneur, you have to have that ability to kind of like navigate it. It's like, yeah, I'm going that way. But it happens that straight line might not work. I might need to go around a little bit. I keep an eye on there um, and I move forward. Nice. So so nice. Let's see another question. So consulting is a fairly you know established business model, right? You're essentially billing time to someone, right? So what, what would be the thing that you think you innovated in that model? Or what's the opportunity that you found uh, in which you have differentiated yourself from some other consulting uh, businesses in Seattle? Because you have very prominent clients. I don't know if I can name them. I'll let you name them, right? But Yeah, it, you can name them. All right. So I, I think like Amazon, uh, like Microsoft. Do you know them. That's the first thing. <laughs> well, anyways, I'll let you name them. But like, what's the thing within that business model that you, what's the opportunity that you found and what was like your wedge in that world? So again, I saw an opportunity to provide a service that was carried by our clients. Mm -hmm. So our clients had to, you know, bring an, an, an agency to do creative work. Mm -hmm. They bring a consulting firm because they wanted to build a framework. And then during their like nights and weekends, they have to figure out how to connect the frameworks they have with the, the liberals they want to create and address them and land them. Mm -hmm. So I, what I found out was that that space, okay? And it's, I, I've been in the business for seven years now. We're still evolving and it's a moving target because as you can imagine, seven years ago, the market was totally different. Some of our clients are Microsoft, 
AWS or Amazon, uh, Google. We work with universities. We work with uh, Dartmouth University. We work with the University of Washington here in Seattle. We also work with, you know, Bellevue College. And we have an array of B2B companies like OpenText and uh, WeWork and uh, so on and so forth. A lot of Microsoft and Amazon partners that built on top of their platforms. Mm -hmm. I think what is unique about us is having the ability to distill the information. High tech tends to be a very complicated, overcomplicated, I would say. It doesn't need to be that complicated. I'm an engineer, civil engineer. By nature, we engineers tend to talk about what is under the hood. Complex concepts. Customers, exactly. And then sometimes it goes too deep into things that don't really add any value. Yeah, it's like too abstract of a concept for a customer or a layman person to understand, right? For customers, they care about how this thing that you're trying to put in front of me is going to help me do these tasks. So connecting those dots is what we're really good at. We have the ability to simplify those very complex stories. And it's interesting because a lot of the clients come in and say, Renato, do you have... I'm having a conversation right now with a potential client mm-hmm. whether he wants us to rewrite the way they present APIs to their customers mm-hmm. and partners. API. API is a very What's API stand for? APIs application what? We sh- implementation. We should know this. We should know this. Let's Google it. Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> Basically, the API is the guidance for how you connect a platform to another platform and build on top of it. That's those are the that's the premise of it. Yeah. Here's the thing. The funny thing. I am not technical enough. And to prove you that, I don't know what API is. Application right programming now. interface. I Googled it. <laughs> so basically, he's asking me, hey, Renato, do you have, and he's kind of describing this person, do you have a technical person that can understand business and do this and do that? And I said, dude, my son is 11. If you really need someone, I can raise him to be that. It's going to be, it's going to take some time. There's, it's really hard to find these people, like if you name them that way. So what we have created is a team that has that ability. We're not experts on the technology, but we're really good at asking the right question. And we call it, you know, grabbing, finding the nuggets. Right. What are the nuggets of information that are really relevant to what we're trying to say? And craft it in a way that is simple. It can, it can be understood. Yeah. Storytelling, telling a story simply can be very powerful. Um, cool. All right. So I, I think I appreciate a lot that story because I, I think that it goes to say that you don't need to find something incredibly complicated in order to have a venture or a startup or a, or a business, right? You just need to find some differentiator in, in a fairly established business, right? Which is consulting. Let's see. Let me, let me ask you a, hopefully a tough question. <laughs> How do you make, uh, if you can share with us, how do you make tough decisions? One, do you have a framework for that? And then I guess another way to uh, frame that question would be, how do you know when to swing for a home run versus a hit? Uh, How do you know when you have an opportunity in front of you that you're going to go all in? And similarly, how how do you make tough choices? It's a difficult. Mm -hmm. I have the luxury of having partners. So that's a way for you to build a business that will have some ability to address tough choices. They're having different perspectives, right? Not only your own. And and this is the next thing is having partners that think exactly like you might not be good. Mm. People that can challenge you in a productive and in a good way is what you want. So in my case, I know I have blind spots. We all do. So when you're 
making a decision, and it's a tough one. And by a tough one, I mean it's going to impact your business. It could impact to position it in a better place or it can actually destroy your business. That's how you see it when you're trying to make those decisions. You need to have somehow some guardrails. And the guardrails sometimes is people. people that know about your business. They could be your partner, or you can have a board, or you can have a group of people that are actually going to challenge you. And here's the thing that is hard. It's easier to find people that will say yes, sir, to everything that you said. It's easier to find people that will kind of have beers with you and agree on everything that you said, it is really hard to find people that will help you from a constructive point of view to make those decisions. Right. So your 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 answer is no no don't worry don't worry. So your answer, I think it's it's a great piece of advice, which is surround yourself with partners that have different perspectives that challenge you, uh, which is a good and way compliment, to and compliment you. You always have to think right. about it at all levels for the decisions. You want to have that kind of like you know, group of small group of people that you can actually go and say, Hey, I'm going through this. Right. What are the, you know, I'm thinking about doing a, B and C because this is where I am. And you know, new ideas will populate at some point. You have to make the decision at some point you have to say, I take your, I take some of your advice or not. I'm mm -hmm. going on the direction that initially I thought, and that's okay. At least you thought about other alternative and potential consequence. Hopefully. Okay. There was another part of your question. No, like, like when you, this is similar to making decisions, right? Like, you know, in business and in life, you have certain opportunities that are, could be home runs, right? Or mm. uh, a hit. So when you have those opportunities in front of you, I think the question is basically, how do you know when to swing hard for a home run or play it safely and go for a hit? You know, I've never seen something like the, analogy of the swinging mm -hmm. on baseball i don't know if you have ever played baseball we're venezuelans man we're like the land of baseball no, it doesn't mean anything <laughs> I, the first time i played i actually played softball is when i moved to the states wow 18 years ago okay i never played baseball in venezuela fair enough fair, ever. Enough, fair enough okay here's the thing i don't like that analogy mm -hmm. and here's why in business and in life things happen quick but they're not as fast as the moving ball that come approach for me a good sense of do i hit super hard at this or not is try to test the waters try to find a way to say i am going to invest on in this or i see there's a potential for a home run let's call it that way so i'm quickly going to assess if this is a bias that i have about how i think about this business or this opportunity or this capability that i'm going to be building or is a real thing and the way I do that is I go to the customer. Mm, is there with the customer. any customer out there? Is it people willing to pay for this? I'm in the business of making money. So for me, willingness to pay is key. If no one wants to pay for this, I don't think I want to be in that business. So that's how I, I do that. I see that. I see the willingness to pay. I see the market is big enough. Oh, I'm going to swing hard. Nice. nice. So hedge, hedge your bets, tests the waters. Make sure there's a customer that is willing to pay. Nice, nice. All right, let's get, let's move to more advice. So, what is one thing that you knew, you wish you knew seven years ago? Looking back when you started, what is one thing you wish you knew? You know, when you started your business, or you, when you started this journey of creating a a consulting firm to serve B two B tech startups, or one thing that you've learned. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. And it, it, it might be, and this applies, mm -hmm. I, I think it will apply for any business. Success, and success is a relative term. 
Okay. Right. I find, I feel like, you know, my company has right now close to 40 full-time employees. We have grown revenue-wise. It's healthy. Margins are healthy. We work with these humongous companies like AWS and, and Microsoft and Google. And I consider my business successful. I I believe, or I I, I would, I, you know, I, I wish I, I would have known that success doesn't make things easier. Mm-hmm. So there's... At some be point, careful what you wish for. Like, be careful what you wish well, for. <laughs> no, no. It is interesting. Mm. It's like, if you are aiming for growth, grow fast, you know, building something that is going to be big and it, it going to increase the complexity of what you need to do. And it will require from you more, yeah. more time, more brain. Are you willing to do it or not? And I think it's important. When you enter into any venture, one test that I do, so I have a lot of phone calls with people that are like, they reach out and say, hey, Renato, I am thinking about doing blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. And my test is, if you have any hesitation. Wow. <laughs> so you're either 100% in or don't do it. Well, right? if you're building your business, yes. Yeah. You, because otherwise you go You'll be tested. like, and again, there's, there's some things that need to happen for you to say, okay, I'm jumping. Right. But once you jump, you can, don't look back, just go. Right, right. And, push. and don't look and back. If you have, and if you have the right team to support you and to guide you and to give you another perspective and, you know, uh, and, and keep you true to the actual, not to yourself, but true to the benefits of the business, you are going to be successful. Yeah. So, so you answered my next question was, was top reasons to be an entrepreneur and top, top reasons to not start a venture. But I think you already answered one. So tell me top reasons, another reason not to start a venture or a top reason to become an entrepreneur. What's one, like, what are the top three? I, I think become entrepreneur. I am, I'm, I struggle with that. Mm-hmm. You either have it on you or not. There's some element of, I, I don't think you turn someone right. It's like, Oh, I've been doing all the time this, and then now I'm switching and I'm an entrepreneur. I think people that you can turn on and off something that you already have built in. It is tricky because if you ask me, it's like maybe all human beings have it. By nature, we all should have it, correct? I mean, because... You need to go out and hunt and look for an animal and come back, right? right? You have to plan where you're going to kill it. Basic survival instincts is entrepreneurship. Right. Okay, you have to find a rock, and with that rock, you get meat or whatever, or you built a house. You know, it's like things. It's, I think people know they have this hunger for, like, you know, doing something. You know, it's it's interesting that you call it hunger. It's like they have have a drive, a certain certain drive to achieve a specific goal, right? All right, three predictions for 2030. Like, what three predictions for 20? I mean, you'll be wrong. Who cares? I know, <laughs> but I don't like to. No, I'm I I'm always wrong, so. <laughs> like, I mean, but you have you have a pretty good view of like at least the you know uh, in Seattle of based on your purview and your and your current inputs. What is three predictions that you see the world moving towards 2030? It's interesting, yeah. you know, when when the pandemic hit back in Mar- March, I wrote a, a small article, and I think I shared it with you. Mm-hmm. I, they they publish it on, on Forbes and it's like oh, we're gonna was, we're gonna put the link they, somewhere for you guys. I'll, I'll promise. Okay, yeah. if you can find it, send it to me. <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing was at that point I saw it and I was like, oh, this is the Spanish flu all over again. This is the 
you know, all these big milestones in humankind that sparks innovation. And we're seeing it. I mean, the reason high tech is thriving right now, because all of these companies that were doing business the old fashioned way have to adapt in a matter of a month when, you know, it's like, I think Satya. And, uh, you mean to go CEO digital, right? The folks that kept things analog were forced to well, go digital, right? But it's not even that. It's not even the ones that are, they have retail stores mm-hmm. and they're physically right. in their stores. They adapt it and they change it. And they, it's like QBRs have been out for how long? Maybe 30 years? I don't know, maybe yeah. 10, 15 years. QR Why codes. Yeah. We didn't have, we didn't have menus. Digital menus in restaurants. Right, exactly. right, right. And by the way, on and QR it, codes. Like everybody that, cares about yeah. pollution and plastic and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, come on, really? Do you need menus? So, and, and it's true, right? QR codes are used throughout Asia, right? For many, many, many years. And now they're a thing in the US because of the pandemic, right? Back to your question mm. about the predictions. predictions. Three. My, my, okay. But I'm going to give you one. Okay, okay give me because one. Because the other two are, <laughs> okay. One is that I'm a strong believer. I love space. I love this. I, I love that kind of things. It's far away from my reach on my understanding in many ways. But mining asteroids, which mm. is, they're, they're already thinking about it. We have limited amount of resources here, out there. There's more. All right. Asteroid mining is going to be a thing. What else? Yeah. I think there's going to be some sort of universities are going to disappear. Yeah. Universities from a, from a campus point of view, the physical campuses, which is expensive real estate in cities that are like, you know, Seattle, the University of Washington has a beautiful campus close to downtown, close to the water. And we now know they don't need it. Don't need it. <laughs> no one needs it. Yeah. MIT, Harvard, I mean, like Boston is like prime real estate. And it's like, if you sell all of that, they become kind of like the Catholic church. They become, you know, you know, they have a lot of wealth based on uh, real estate. So I think universities will disappear from a physical point of view and they will evolve into something else. Those are two. And I think I will leave it. Nice, nice, nice. I think this is a great segue into the next session, which is about being Venezuelan. I mean, this is the, this is meant to be a Venezuelan diaspora interview. So I'm going to, let's switch that way. And so tell us about your experience going to college and living in Venezuela, I think was in the nineties that you went to college or eighties. Yeah. <laughs> You're not that old. I'm not, that, I'm not that old. And, and, and if you could please just share like, I don't know, some insights and some stories and how that shaped, shaped you to be the entrepreneur that you are, you know, who you are yeah. now. So, so I was born in Caracas, mm-hmm. but moved, um, when I was a year old, actually, to Valencia. So I grew up in Valencia. I went to the University of Carabobo, the Universidad de Carabobo. University of Carabobo sounds so yeah. weird. Um, <laughs> I did a civil engineering there. It is funny that you were asking me that question. I received, you know, what's up, uh, video of someone that recently walked by, like, the hallways and the building. In engineering? Thing, in engineering. Oh, wow. And it's like, it, it, it gave you kind of like that... It was great. It was painful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's a weird feeling. If it's like I miss it. You are young. You're growing up. You know, there's there's a lot of things that you are experimenting with. There's a lot of learning. I had a great experience there. I got married when I was 19, which 
you know, gave me a total different perspective of how I use my time in college. Okay. Uh, so I went there, grew up there. It was very interesting. I think this, the educational system there was built in a way that the faculty were good if they make people fail, not teach them. So mm. I remember my first. Oh, this is the whole philosophy around like you're a good teacher if the folks are failing because you're better if than they them. Cannot, yeah, if they yeah. cannot understand anything that you're saying because you're teaching them such a difficult subjects and things that it's like you are amazing. Right. So you felt so that dumb. the bar was always like way too high to, to reach, right? Let, let me tell you an example. A clear, it, it's not like, oh, I had it, some things in my life, it's about feelings. And mm. I felt that way, but it wasn't that way. This one is a real one. I had my first math class with this uh, professor. He had two sections of 110 students, each section, two, 220 in total. In, in Venezuela, well, in the University of Carabao, we have semesters. So you have three kind of midterms and then a final. And then if you, if you fail all of them, and you fail the final, whatever, you've, you've failed the average and your final, you go to a makeup test. Okay. okay. So uh, in this class, 220 students, 210 went to the makeup test. Oh, so they didn't 210. take the... 210. Wow. So they just... So we failed all of them <laughs> and went 210. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I go there and I'm taking the test. And this test, they make it on purpose, like super long. Three hours, four hours, just numbers, 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 numbers. And, you know, it's like it was four questions only. So four problems that will take you almost three hours, which tells you how easy it is to make a mistake. Right, because if, no if, if you fail on one, points. then you're screwed. <laughs> so I go and I'm, I'm turning in my, I finished, I'm done. It's like I go, done. I walk into the, the professor that is sitting back there. It's like I gave him my test and I asked him, so when are you going, when are you planning to publish the, the grades? And he's like, I can't do it right now. So he pulled a pen and started testing. Grading. Uh, checking my, my answers, my grading. Yeah. Checking my answers. And then the guy, he does the first one correct. The second one, correct. The third one, correct. And the fourth one, he turns the page and marked it like incorrect and I said wait 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 you didn't look at that one and he's like you know what he said mm -mm. do you really want me to look at it Ooh, <laughs> it was like a threat <laughs> so so he was like capping your grade he's like all right you did okay i'm gonna cap you here well actually you know what he said no one in a makeup test can get 20 out of 20 so in venezuela you get 20 out of 20 um, mm. and i was like okay <laughs> <laughs> guy, guy. Nice slap in the face. Right. You little brat kid, you know, um, this is reality. I, it is interesting. I took that as a way for me to not act like, the, like that in, in my life, one. And two, as a way for me to work even harder. I didn't want to be in that situation ever again. When I moved to the States and I started my MBA, and the first, you know, finance class I remember, it's like, I don't know anything. Like, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. So I went to office hours. The professor was so nice. And I was so worried. Because I have this, you know, post PTSD, PTSD, right, right, yeah. right. This guy, Literally, like, you, like, you suffer. What? You're being so nice to me. 
Yeah, what do I need to do? I mean, it's like I was worried. It's mm. like he's um, being too nice. Something's wrong. Exactly, and it it's amazing because my brain and and you know, growing up in Venezuela, there were a lot of things that were backwards, uh, and in the eighties, in the nineties. So I grew up, you know, in the nineties. I was I graduated from high school in ninety fifth. Yeah. Uh, so I went to school mid-90s to 2000. And it was very interesting because a lot of things were, the society was built in a way that it was actually against you. Everything was, like I- Every, Everything I was a, a barrier, right? It will take you, it will take you so long for no reason at all, but it will take you so long that people would just drop and say, ah, I'm not going Screw to this. You know, make this business legal. Right. I, 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 I'm I, going I to have, take that and say, yeah. Yeah. I have Go heard ahead. that in the past that like the universities and the, like the philosophy, educational philosophy, at least in the nineties was very like punishment. Right. And it made it extremely hard for you to like perform in Venezuela. So I have to say something. Go ahead. It was not, it was not necessarily every single professor. Right. I had the opportunity. I had the chance to have great uh, teachers, great teachers, not because they were easy to pass. Okay. Mm. But it was because they were really care about, about teaching, giving you something that you can take. And it wasn't necessarily memorizing a formula, but it's about thinking and how you solve the problem and that kind of things that actually are valuable. Yeah. So I had that opportunity too. And I, and, and I have to be like, it's not all bad experience right right but you have to share the drama otherwise it, it, it's not interesting so but let me let it me marks, ask you this. It, but yeah. what what are the things that and this is aligned to what you were saying what are those things that you think you bring from venezuela that have made you uh have helped you to be successful in the u.s if you could name one or one two is, yeah one is being scrappy mm -hmm. so it is very interesting i i think in venezuela even i've never worked in a large corporation in Venezuela. I have this sense of resources are very limited. Scarcity, right? Resources the scarcity of resources makes you be like smarter about it, huh? And 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 yeah, you are you're very creative about how to solve a problem with the limited amount of resources. When I came here and I saw peers, same age, same kind of experience, grew up in different countries. Mm -hmm. they are they were so used to having so many resources around them that when they didn't have one of them they, they felt freak like out. Ah. right and it was very interesting i at the beginning i was like oh my goodness i am this is such a liability that i don't know how to leverage all my resources that i have on my disposal here mm. but very quickly i realized it was such a big asset because i was solving problems right. in a way different ways that was way more efficient in many cases and that helped me advance faster. So, you know, I think the scrappiness and like resourceful, it's, it's one of, one of the things that I, I learned there. The other thing is, uh, and again, everybody takes it in the different ways. I, I was, you know, I was impacted by devaluation. Changes of government. The stability in the in the money supply. <laughs> Instability in a in a level that was also you know growing up in my family 
I was not, you know, I, 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 I had a, a, a father that worked really hard and tried to provide. He has his own businesses and he failed. And suddenly we were not, you know, in a good, you know, financial situation. Um, and so seeing all of that also made me very resilient and capable of adapting. And I, you know, I think that's another thing that I, it's very valuable here. And we see it right now with the pandemic and the right. political situation of the country where there's a lot of tension from everywhere and it's hard and you need to find ways to release the pressure somehow and adapt to what it is. Uh, otherwise, it's like you kind of lose it. Yeah, I agree. I think scarcity and adaptability for sure. Like the fact that things can go sideways at any moment and then you adapt, right? Um, like the other day here in, uh, I'm based in Oakland, uh, they had to shut off the electricity for, I think one day because of, you know, some weather issues and people were freaking the F out. They were freaking out and like, people are like calling me, oh, what are you going to do? I'm like, well, you know that when they turn off the lights, you just wait for them to come on, right? And in the meantime, you solve. So, all right, let me, let me jump onto the next one. Uh, so I ask you about what are the things that you think being Venezuelan has helped you. Uh, tell me about the things that you actually think that you sort of left behind or had to relearn uh, coming from Venezuela. Things that I, perhaps were not as helpful that you learned that you had to relearn when you came into the US. I think 19 years ago, 20 years ago? 18. 18, 18 years, yeah. This summer will be 19. Mm -hmm. uh, so I came, I was 24. It is interesting. I, my, my head goes into the typical kind of things. We grew up in a country where there were a lot of things that, how can I say this? It's like the tolerance for certain things was way wider than the tolerance here for certain things. It's not that I have to relearn, but you have to kind of like acknowledge that wherever you are living, you have to play by the the rules of the play. Mm -hmm. And rather than, I, I remember like listening to people complaining about, and from other, from other cultures actually, uh, which is interesting, is like saying it aloud, like, you know, I feel like once you decide to, to go to another country, regardless of the country, there's going to be great things and, and bad things. Um, the way I take these kind of things is like, there's a lot of things that I feel like in Venezuela, they were wrong, okay? I, I feel like, you know, as, as, as people, we're very, very disrespectful with others, depending on their appearance, their social status, and things like that. And it was very, you know, I, I remember when I came here. Bigotries tolerated. It, 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 mm -hmm. Yeah, and, I, and it was, we grew up with that. And, and it was in our faces. And even though we were in schools, like, you know, uh, that that actually we're trying to change that everything around it was populated by by these kind of bully kind of situations when i came here it was actually interesting for me because it was a realization of huh this is a good place because i don't need to bulldoze anything i just need to play by the because, rules yeah yeah and uh, and Whereas there, you kind of sometimes feel like, okay, if you don't bulldoze, if you don't cheat, then you're not you're yeah. not getting it's ahead. It's like really, I mean, and it's so frustrating. Mm. And you know what the sad thing is, is that we are not that. We are not that. 
Venezuela is not about that. It's a handful of people that are louder. And it, you know, and it affects, but we are not that. The nature of our people is actually way better. And that, you know, it's like, for me, it was something that I left that I knew was like, ah, I wish we could actually figure out a way to create that goodness and bring that goodness and elevate the people that needs to be elevated. Right. All right. So let's let's move into a more positive note and, and start to the last section, which is I know, Renato, that you know a lot about resources for Hispanics and, um, you know, the things that other entrepreneurs like you uh, that were like you <laughs> uh, could do to leverage in the U.S. So what are the things that you sort of found out about being Hispanic entrepreneur in the U.S. that others that are listening to us could leverage? If you could give us like two or three tips of things to look into. Yeah. I think the first one is minority-owned business. Mm -hmm. Every single state has a certification for minority-owned business. It is a little bit of red tape, but it is, you know, they, they, need, to, they need to ask you for a lot of documentations. So, oh, so meaning applying to be categorized as a yeah, minority-owned business. Become, Got it. Become, yeah, sorry. Become a certified minority-owned business. And how does that help? And, and let me tell mm. you, it, it's not necessarily going to, it's like, as soon as you do it, now you have a flood of uh, business coming in. No, but here's the thing. It might open back doors mm. to become supplier for some companies. Why? Because these companies care about diversity. They are seeking diversity in their supplier uh, rosters. So that way you have access directly to places, maybe the you didn't have a network of people. So that is one thing. Again, don't pretend that because you are certified, immediately you're going to get the job. You need to be certified and you need to deliver quality and you need to differentiate yourself. But so that's that helpful is one. one element. Yeah. So that's one element. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to ask about like, there's also like, I know the associations, right? Like, there's like Hispanic associations. So, um, uh, that you could also use to network and, and, and create opportunities for yourself, right? So, so when I moved here, I started looking into like, okay, what are the, so growing up in Valencia, you know, all my life there, I kind of knew everyone. When I started working, it's funny. It's like my, one of my first jobs when I got, got married when I was 19, is a friend of mine at the university said, dude, my uncle is hiring in his, you know, broker insurance firm. Do you want to go there? and work because he knew on the situation that I was. And he right. said, of course, yeah, let's go. I go there, I walked into the office and the manager of the office, it's a guy that I know. And he is like, hey, Renato, what are you doing here? And my friend looked at me and said, what? <laughs> and he's like, how do you know him? And anyhow, it's like, network you matters. had a network. Network matters. Yeah, and again, if I don't perform, I'm out. But opening the door helps. So when I move here and I realized, oh, I don't know anyone in Seattle, I went to, look into uh, Latin organizations. Uh, and there are many Latino organizations. If you are in finance, there's Alpha. If you are, um, and I was doing an MBA, I was, I was, think, I was starting to take the test to go uh, to business school. Uh, so I went in, look into Nashim, but the National Society of Hispanic MBAs, they didn't have a chapter in Seattle. And at that time, kind of it was a perfect storm. There was some people at, Microsoft, some people at Boeing, some people that were MBAs, and it's like, okay, let's all get together and create a chapter here. 
And at some mm. point I was the president of that chapter here, but it gave me access to give you a, a platform, right? Yeah. And then depending on what you want to do, uh, pick that organization that is going to get closer to, if you're in construction, there's a lot of Latino organizations around construction. Uh, if you're going into business, the MBAs, why? It's like they give you access to Latinos in top companies around where you are, uh, whether you're going to provide a service to them, uh, like in, I do for, through consulting, uh, or because you want to work on that company too. Right, uh, right. But definitely there's, there's tons of organizations that will uh, allow you to build a network to help you advance on, on your goals. Nice, nice. All right. So you must be wondering why are two Venezuelans speaking English in, in an interview? And the reason for that is that we've created this, this space to find uh, Venezuelan entrepreneurs in the U.S. We are comprised, uh, based on Danny Bahar, which we interviewed a couple of weeks ago, and uh, Francisco Marquez, we are between 500,000 and I think 600,000 Venezuelans in the U.S. Now, the Venezuelans, we represent one of the most highly qualified, both in terms of academic achievement and professional experience, immigrants in the US. And so we represent an opportunity for uh, creating ventures and job creation and wealth creation. And so if you're a Venezuelan entrepreneur looking for support and help, reach out to us. If you want to be interviewed and be part of this, uh, please again, reach out to, to us. We'll put a link somewhere in here. Um, I want to thank you, Renato, so much for your time. And if you want to say something to close this space, well, please go for it. I Part of the whole thing is I am going to put my email too oh, around awesome. there. I, I've been lucky enough to have a lot of people help me. I believe in giving back. Uh, I might not be able to help everyone, but I know people that have the drive and they want to be successful. Uh, I will do everything I can. So don't. Don't hesitate to reach out. Thank you so much, Jesus uh, Alberto. Jesus Alberto. El Chue, El Chue. Uh, that's my acronym Chue. for this show. El Chue. <laughs> El Chue. Mi nombre es... Actually, you uh -huh. should... I'm going to yeah, make a, I need to make a, a tag. Guy. I need to make a tag. That's right. Mi nombre es Jesus Alberto Bolivar. Thank you so much, guys. Bye.